Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Carmen Maria Machado. Carmen's debut short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, is out now from Grey Wolf Press and has just been shortlisted for this year's National Book Award. Her work has appeared in Granta, The New Yorker, NPR, Electric Literature, and elsewhere. She's been nominated for a Nebula Award and a Shirley Jackson Award, and was a finalist for the Calvino Prize. I loved Her Body and Other Parties. Carmen writes deep into the female subconscious, heightening and twisting the challenges that women face, as severe as sexual violence, as seemingly superficial as beauty, into uncanny and emotionally devastating tales. Her work is deeply imaginative and formally playful. The Husband Stitch, for instance, riffs off a familiar ghost story in which the female protagonist wears a mysterious green ribbon around her neck. Especially Heinous, a novella in the collection, is a seasons-long episode guide to a warped version of Law & Order SVU, with doppelgangers, ghosts, and girls with bells for eyes. I had only gotten through one story in this collection before I was texting people and telling them to order it. But writers' voices are funny things. Carmen's style is so unique, but it wasn't always that way. We talk about how she found it. We also talk about how short stories are like algebra, in a good way. Processing life through narrative, and why she also loves writing erotica. And it felt right, you know. It just felt like I had arrived at some, something important about my own practice. I was looking back at your book today because I read it, uh, which seems fitting, I think, while I was traveling to Singapore. So I was on a plane and on this very weird time shift. And I think it like suited your style very nicely to kind oh, of like have this very like dreamlike recollection of, of what was going on, uh, which I mentioned by way of of asking, you know, your style is so incredible and so unique and it, it for listeners who aren't familiar kind of uses a lot of of genre conceptions and and formal you know it's very playful in terms of its form and and I wonder if you could maybe start by just talking about you know how that sort of manifests for you when you sit down to write is that kind of just what comes out or or are you very interested in form and think about right how can I dismantle x type of story with with this project yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Like, I, I definitely write, I, I think I sort of think in my prose, and I think in form, like, that's just the way that my brain sort of conceives of stories. Um, so I don't, it's not as if I sit down and, like, sort of plot out something, and then I'm like, hey, how can I make this, like, a weird form, you know? Like, it just sort of comes out that way. Um, but I am also very interested in sort of dismantling form and examining tropes and examining like the stories that we tell and what how the stories that we tell and what they tell us about ourselves um so it's also conscious so it's it's sort of both um but it's a formula that seems to work so so did you grow up kind of in a big oral storytelling tradition and in, in a family that was always kind of telling these sorts of, you know, you, you use a lot of, uh, a lot of ghost story themes and things like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so my grandfather is Cuban and when I was growing up, his stories about Cuba and about sort of his life were just sort of the centerpiece of, um, my sort of understanding of the world. Uh, and we have heard these stories so many times that any of us in my family could repeat any of them back to you, like detail for detail. Um, even though my grandfather is 
older and does not recall them nearly as well, but we just have heard them for so long. Um, and my father is also a storyteller, and I feel like I grew up understanding sort of how to gather my experiences into narrative form. So, like, when a thing would be happening to me, I would think, not, like, in a, in a conscious way, but I would sort of be thinking about, like, the narrative form of what was happening to me at that moment. Um, and that was very sort of useful to me. I mean, I also read a lot, so I was getting it also from just books. But there was something about, um, that, you know, speaking, like, learning how to think about your own experiences for an audience. Um, which I think it just is a part of that, like, oral storytelling tradition. Right. And, and kind of maybe growing up like that reinforces the writer's idea that, like, everybody is material. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I once had somebody tell me that I used too many details from my life and my fiction, and I was like, I don't know any other way. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's sort of it. That's just the way, you know? I feel like there's this, like, bubbling conversation right now about, like, autofiction in, in, in some, sure. for, you know, to imply that it, like, kind of hasn't always been happening, and I don't, I don't really understand why that's a very, like, kind of of-the-moment discussion. Yeah. No, I totally agree. It's like, I don't know any writers that don't pull from their own lives in some way. Like, I feel like that's sort of just, it is what it is, you know? Absolutely. Um, I wanted to make sure to ask you too, because I think we're about the same age, is when the, the husband stitch, um, I could still see the cover of the book that I read, like the variation on that story, you know, the ribbon story. Um, and I think they're called like more stories to tell in the dark or something like that. Are you, were yeah. you kind of working from the, from the same memory? <laughs> I was, I was. So actually this is such a weird detail. And I feel like, yeah, there's, it, there's like a certain age range that like know these books very clearly. So actually the story of Jenny, or it's called the green ribbon, but Jenny is the protagonist in that telling. And it is by the same author, but it's actually not in those books, which is like, it's like a weird false memory that people have. Um, I also thought that they were in those books. And then when I was doing research for that story and I have like the collected trilogy of that series, the scary stories to tell in the dark, more scary stories to tell in the dark. And there's a third one. Um, and I looked through the whole thing and it wasn't in there. And I was like, that's so weird. I could have sworn it was in there, but he has another book that I think is actually for younger readers. I think for like middle schoolers. Um, with way less creepy illustrations. And and that is where the Green Ribbon is. It's called um, In a Dark, Dark Room. Um, but it's the same, it's the same author, Alvin Schwartz, who was like a folklorist who like took like fairy tales and folk tales and urban legends and like retold them for the page for young people. That was sort of his um his thing. Wow. Well that uh, is blowing my mind, but I'm glad that you at least misremembered it as well. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. I did too. I wonder. It's weird. It's like, what is? I forget what that thing is called. Where like you ever, people have like fake, false memories of like things that don't exist. Like right. The spelling of Berenstein Bears. I feel like it's like that. Everybody seemed to think it was in that book because I think that book was really formative for a lot of people, and those illustrations were so like iconic that that's the association people have. But yeah, it wasn't in that book. Um, but a lot of the other stories in the Husband Stitch are from that book, are from those that trilogy, the the scary stories tell in the dark. So in the mix with your father and your grandfather telling you stories and kind of growing up as a voracious reader were these sort of spooky stories and ghost stories and, you know, uncanny tales. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I also was a Girl Scout. Uh, and so there were a lot of campfire stories. And actually, 
Um, I also have a memory of a girl telling the, the Green Ribbon story, like, at a camp. When I, I must have been, I must have been in elementary school, or maybe early middle school. Um, and then at some point, I got the scary story books, and then I also would tell those stories around the campfire, and I loved them because I got to, like, you know, that, like, jump out at my... And they thought I fellow Girl Scouts. I could be like, you have it very loudly and like jump at them. And they would scream hysterically. And it was like my favorite, uh, <laughs> my favorite thing in the world. Um, yeah. So I definitely think that I was always sort of drawn to like darker narratives, like creepy ghost stories. Um, and, and then that sort of, I feel like contributed to it, like that desire to like tell a story that like affects somebody. Um, and make somebody like scream or cry or, or feel un- unsettled or uneasy. Um, I think I always really wanted that. Um, I mean, obviously I think I wanted it as an artist, but I didn't know that at the time. I just knew that was something that I liked and that I wanted. I've actually been thinking about this kind of a lot lately because I um, am a big David Lynch fan and I've been really obsessed with the return of Twin Peaks. And, and so I've been watching it and I've been thinking like, I love this sort of storytelling. And I thought this while reading your book too, like the same thing, like I love this type of storytelling so much, but when I sit down to write, it's just not what happens. And I kind of, so I'm kind of thinking about, you know, like what draws you to those, to those ideas and sort of how they manifest. And I just think it's super interesting because you can't, um, for me, I think, as the consumer of that work, it's so much, there's so much there to explore and so much to try. It's like, even when it's not like a mystery, there's still that puzzle aspect to it. That's really satisfying. I always tell students, so I teach and I always tell them like, you know, a short story is like a puzzle. It's like a puzzle that you're figuring out. It's like a problem that you have to figure out. And the story is the process by which you figure out the answer to the problem that is also the story. Um, When I approach a short story, I'm, it, it feels like, you know, it's funny, I, I, I'm really bad at math, but when I was younger, I really loved doing, like, algebra, because I loved the sort of neatness of it, like, the columns, like, this process of sort of going through it, and I really, I really enjoyed that process, and I feel like when I'm writing a short story, it, it has the same sense of satisfaction, where it's like, everything kind of falls into place, and it's like, aha, you know, I've solved the problem, um, I don't know what it is about it. It's it's so strange, but I, yeah, I find it really satisfying. That's really funny. I also loved algebra, but generally hated math. There is something like just very. It's like it's like cleaning your house or something. Yes, and I also love. <laughs> yeah, so do I. <laughs> exactly. This is so funny because my wife. I am. I am then very neat. I'm the neat person in our household. So that is sort of my uh, role. There has to be one. <laughs> And, but I, yeah, I like love cleaning and organizing. Like it feels very soothing to me and algebra felt exactly the same way. And I feel like with a short story, there was like a part, like a part of that creation process, which only I'm like, aha, like it's all come together. There's this great weight is lifted off my shoulders. I feel so much better. So you have this very clear moment then maybe it sounds like of knowing like when a story is done. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I feel like, I mean, I think I get better and better at that. I mean, I think when I started off, when I was a younger writer, I think it was really hard to tell. And that's a question I get a lot from, like, students. Like, when do you know something is done? And it's like, that's, there's no, like, answer. It's, I think it's basically, like, whenever you can't really do much to it anymore, or you can't make it any better. Um, and that's also usually what I, what I find, when I find, like, an editor is so useful, because I feel like a lot of my work, like, it'll get to a point, and I'll be like, okay... I need to pass this off to an editor or someone because I feel like I can't do anything else to the story. Right. 
or or if I get in there, I'm going to cause more harm than good. Exactly, exactly. Because I definitely, I mean, I remember, like, there are stories that, like, no one will ever see that, <laughs> that like, have never been published that I wrote that are, like, awful. And I feel like part of the problem was, like, I, I enjoyed going in and, like, polishing the hell out of them, but I, like, polished it to the point where I, like, destroyed it, you know? Like, I just sort of took everything that made it kind of, like, juicy and weird and just, like, took the shine right off of it. So, so yeah, so I, I just really, um, but I'm getting better better having a sense of, like, this this I feel like this thing that I've created is like answering itself right right I uh was just reading some of your other writing uh and you say somewhere I think it might be in an LA review of books piece and you're talking about um leaving leaving some plot points untangled in in short fiction and not necessarily tying everything up how do you kind of how does that fit fit into the process of like that soothing algebra feeling. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, I feel like there's this element, the nice thing about having sort of pieces in a story that are kind of open-ended or like untied up um, is that it gives you this way, I feel like it gives the reader a way to enter the story. Like, I think it's possible for a story to be too tied up and too tight. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I'm thinking particularly about um, uh, Kelly Link has this really amazing, oh my god, I can't think of the name of this of the story. It's, like, so famous. It's gonna make me crazy. It's, like, a fairy tale. Oh, my wife's gonna kill me. <laughs> she, she would know if she was here, I would ask her, and she'd be able to tell me. Um, well, anyway, she has a, she has a short story that's a retelling of a, of a fairy tale, and there's this bit where a cat just sort of, like, walks out of the story and, like, into another story, but, like, somewhere else. And like never shows up again, and it just like and it just like punctures the the walls of the story and just like goes away. And I feel like there's something about sort of details that are maybe a little looser, or like there's like places where like a reader can enter, like a reader's imagination, or where I could potentially re-enter, like later, you know, um, as as a writer, as a storyteller, like maybe there's something that happened in there that I can explore later. Um, but I, I feel like that sort of sense of puncturing is, like, kind of important. I mean, it's also the way I think about genre as well. So, like, it feels right, even though it's not neat. Like, it feels right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. This has been a really interesting uh, thing to work with in my own writing right now because I'm working on this novel project, but all of my uh, training really is in journalism. And so, like, I have this just deep instinct to, like, deliver the information. Mm. And, like, and, you know, a part of the problem is just, like, it's still a first draft and you're still figuring out what the story is. So, in a sense, you do kind of have to, like, tell yourself the story. But, like, having to remember that, like, art of it, you know, okay, well, this is how you let somebody come in and and leave some room for the imagination. Yeah, it's so funny. I, I was actually a journalism major for, like, one semester in college. Like, <laughs> I, I was basically, I, you know, I was, when I was young, I was like, I'm going to be a writer. And my poor father, who's an engineer, who, like, wanted me to, like, make good choices and, like, have health insurance, was like, well, you can be a journalist. Right. Everything <laughs> changed. He was like, you know, this is 2004. He was like, you can be a journalist. You can be a journalist and you'll have, like, health insurance, but you'll also be able to write. And I was like, okay. So I went to college. I took, like, one or two, like, reporting classes and I was like wow this is not what I want to do um and my journalism teacher kept like like getting rid of my adjectives like she was like nope nope too it's too much it's too much um 
and then I had to like tearfully confess to her that I was like, I just want to be a writer. Absolutely. And that's, um, it, it was kind of similar. Like I, um, I mean, obviously I work as a journalist and still, still do sometimes. So it's not like I had quite the same trajectory, but, um, I always, I always enjoyed the writing more than anything else. And I particularly like, didn't really love the reporting. Like I didn't oh, love God, have yeah. like, <laughs> it's really hard. It's really hard to talk to people. Um, yep. and I remember in I remember in grad school, a few of us telling like our magazine professor that like we really just hated making the phone calls. And he was like, he was like, it like the color drained from his face. He was just like, I don't even know what to, what? You like, you have to. Are you kidding me? I, I did a few pieces for the New Yorker, um, some of which involved some very light reporting. And it was like the most stressful thing of my entire life. Like, I was just like, I can't, I am not suited for this. This is just not in my. I don't like calling people and asking, like asking for their, I don't know. I just, I, yeah, I also do not like it. I don't like phone calls. So I was, it was just, yeah, I get it. <laughs> do you feel like um, you, short stories are kind of like your sweet spot? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love, I, I, I feel like I'm sort of naturally good at short stories. Like, I feel like I always compare it to like running. Like, you know, there are people who are like natural sort of like long distance runners and natural sprinters, or people who are like natural weightlifters as opposed to like cardio, like running. And I feel like I'm naturally good at fiction, um, at, at, at short fiction. Like, I, I think in short stories. I love essays, and I've been writing more and more essays in the last few years, but they take me like easily 10 times longer than a short story. Um, just because it's more sort of emotional. Or I'm sort of drawing on, like, a more sort of um, intense emotional well, I guess. And also just, like, I don't know, it's, just, it's harder. Like, it just, like, I have an essay collection in progress, but I'm picking away at it. It feels interminably slowly because I'm just, you know, it's like, and I, I have all these ideas for essays, um, and I uh, and I just, I don't know, like, I just work through them very slowly because that's just not how my brain works. Um yeah, so I just feel like the short form, the short fictional form is just like where I'm sort of at like my natural stride and everything else I'm, I'm straining. I, I read another piece about your work uh, in the LA Review of Books, and it mentioned, which I had never heard before, uh, Freud's definition of the uncanny uh, as something familiar that ought to have remained hidden and has come to light. And it clicked for me that, that that's what makes, I think, your writing style so powerful when applied to the themes that you work with about, you know, the way women are treated and relationship dynamics and gender dynamics and what meshes those two things together for you? If, if that's something that you're conscious of fully, which you might not even be. Sure. I, mean, yeah, I don't, I mean, yeah, it's that thing where it's like, it's both on purpose and not on purpose. Um, I mean, I'm writing about things that I think about, like those are just, that's, that's, those are thoughts that preoccupy my mind on a pretty regular basis. Um, and I think, you know, this book is sort of a way to express the kind of frustration that I feel 
Um, and I think that people, I mean, all kinds of people feel this, feel this sort of, you know, stress and this frustration. I feel like people of color feel this. I feel like women feel this. Queer people, um, where you're like trying to explain something that seems very simple, but it's like, you're not being heard. It's like, you're just talking to, to a wall. And, and I feel like I, I, you know, would grind my teeth and just like, I feel like I had so many thoughts and got so angry and so frustrated and upset. Um, and then it just occurred to me that maybe this is not something that I should be writing about because I feel like maybe the fiction is a way to sort of tackle this idea. Um, in a way that's sort of more useful than just like thinking dark thoughts um, and like yelling at people, which is kind of what my default was before. Like, I feel like I was a very, um, or I shouldn't say I thought, I, I was like a very combative sort of teen in, in my early 20s. And I think I am still combative in important ways, but I've become less needlessly combative as a person, uh, just in terms of like, you know, my reactions to things. I feel like it's, I've, become, I've kind of calmed down a little bit, but it's because it's all just, it's all just like churning inside of my brain. So I feel like this was like my way of sort of coalescing all those emotions and like trying to do something kind of useful with them. Yeah, right, right. And um, I also was doing some research and because, uh, you know, I don't have children. This was not a fact that I had been aware of that the husband stitch is a is an actual medical term or <laughs> is an actual procedure. It is. Right. So, you know, this is, this is so funny because... Um, you know, that story came together in this really weird way where it was, like, a lot of different ideas that I had that sort of, like, I feel like a lot of stories that I write, I'm writing them over the course of, like, a long time and just putting down ideas. And then I look at, I'll look at, like, a list of ideas and realize that I have, like, a story, like, in there. But I've been, like, writing it in pieces. Um, so that story, so that title came from, like, a, when I was in, I think I was in grad school still, I went, um to visit my relatives in Wisconsin and I have an aunt who's a nurse, an OBGYN nurse. And she just, I don't remember in what context she brought it up, but she mentioned it. And I said, that's not real. And she's like, it's totally real. And I went home and I Googled it and I was like, Oh my God. Um, it's just like, you know, this thing people would say, and she's like, yeah, husband's definitely, or, you know, yeah, husband's asked for it. Like sort of jokingly usually, but they do, it comes up not infrequently. Um, and I was obviously horrified and also sort of struck by the, very sinister phrase, the husband stitch, which is, I mean, it's sinister. I don't know what else to say about it. It's pretty great. Um, it's great in that it's so terrible. And so I had that. And then I had like these other ideas that kind of came together. And then when I, I realized like, oh, I have a title for this story already. Um, you know, it's, it's in my, it's like already here in my, in my idea file. So that's like um, the the novella in the collection, especially heinous, which is um, for folks who haven't read it yet, uh, kind of a season by season episode synopsis breakdown of uh, Law and Order SVU. And I I finished it, and I was like, wait, the the opening credits can't actually use the phrase especially heinous. And I went back and watched and found like a YouTube clip of just the credits, and of course they do, obviously. But I was just like, oh my god, like how. How have I missed this whole time or just like absorbed silently, you know, this like representation of, you know, oh, well, women are going to be treated heinously. That's clear. But, you know, this, when it's especially yeah. heinous, it's above board. It's not above board. And, and do you feel like this is a moment in which we are kind of talking about the like dead girl phenomenon a bit more? And, and do you think that's helpful? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, it's funny. I have a lot of I have a lot of writer friends who write a lot of nonfiction um, who 
uh, have been writing a lot about dead girls, you know, quote unquote, um, you know, women, women who have died, um, and how we sort of fetishize and think about women who have died, uh, or ignore them. So like my friend Emma Eisenberg had this really amazing piece, and I can't remember what magazine it was in, about um, a black trans woman who went missing uh, in the South like two years ago, and they still don't know where she is. Um, and sort of talking about like why don't, and like how the family's been trying to like get um, people to pay attention to like what has happened uh, to this woman, and no one gives a shit. No one cares, and I mean, people care, but like the authorities don't care, and they like didn't follow up on like all these leads, and just you know, so it's like women either go missing and we fetishize it, or they go missing and we don't care. Um, and also, like, I remember, I'll never forget, like, I when I, I was dating somebody for a while who was, um, went to the uh, Indiana University, and right when she moved in, there were these signs that this, this co-ed who had gone missing, um, and she, I think to this day, is still missing. Um, they don't know what happened to her. Uh, and she, like, she was, like, a young, like, pretty blonde, like, 19-year-old, and she, like, walked away from her friends in a bar, like, was never discovered, and was never found. And there were, like, signs everywhere, like, signs in yards, billboards, like, they were, it was just, like, this huge local story, and I, I think it even made national news. And what I, I was, I'm writing about this for this memoir I'm working on, and I was, like, looking up information about this woman's disappearance, and I discovered that at the same time, there was another young woman from, like, a poorer family that went missing at, like, the exact same time, but you, like, never heard about her, you right. know? Right. Um, so, like, we're simultaneously sort of like, oh, my God, this, like, beautiful young blonde woman is, like, gone missing. Like, what, you know, people are, like, you know, just, you know, bring the smelling salts um, and just, like, very, like, intensely like, fetishizing this sort of, you know, this, this, this disappearance. And then you also have this, like, woman who's being totally ignored. So I feel like, you know, I have, I think a lot about sort of, like, yeah, like, narratives around, like, wi- like women and, like, sexual violence. Um, and I just... I don't know, this was, like, sort of my way of trying to, like, get into that space. And what better way to do that than, like, a, like telling a story about a show that tells stories about sexual violence. Can you talk about how this book came together? You know, you you said that you stories tend to kind of gather steam for you over the course of a long time. and And I know that many of these were published, you know, separately and kind of how long had you been working on it when did you realize you had a collection it's, uh sorry just i'm just laughing because like i just i'm thinking about because I, I wrote the first story that's difficult at parties is the oldest story in that collection it's from 2011 and i'm just remembering back in 2011 i was like i have enough stories for a collection and like how literally the difficult at parties is the only one that's like survived since that like time <laughs> that i thought i had a collection um yeah so when i was in grad school um, I, I don't know. So the, my first semester in, in grad school, I, I was sort of struggling and I, I was writing a lot of like kind of stuff that wasn't really working and difficult at parties was the first thing that I wrote that really like clicked for me. And I felt like I had, a, I had arrived at some, some sense of my own aesthetic, which before I never really thought about. Um, and people seemed to really respond to that story. And I was like, okay, I feel good about this. So and I wrote, like, other things sort of in between. Um, I also wrote, when I was in grad school, um, Real Women Have Bodies, though it's a pretty different version than the version that's in the book, because that is so old that it had to be, like, whole chunks had to be sort of rewritten. Mm. Um, 
but and then also especially heinous so those are the three that i wrote in grad school so those are all the oldest in the collection and everything else is since i graduated um but i kept sort of having a quote-unquote a collection i mean that included like my thesis which is the same title as my book but only has those three stories in common like all the others are different and are like uh, i you know it exists in book form at the university of iowa and i really hope no one goes and looks at it because it's pretty (laughs) terrible um but yeah so i um and I think I also had this thing where people would say, oh, a collection should sort of be not connected necessarily like in, like they should never be necessarily like linked to each other, but like they have to be sort of in conversation in some way. And I was like, Psh, that's ridiculous. It's just a collection of stories. What's the deal? Um, and I think that's why I was struggling for a long time was I, I just wasn't sure like how I thought about it as a philosophy, like, where's my philosophy of the short story collection? And then I realized after a while that the stories that I, or the collections that I most enjoyed reading are collections that are, in, are speaking to each other, and there's a sort of a sense of common purpose, um, and even common voice, even if the voices are different characters. Um, and, that's, and that's different than saying just like, oh, these are the last, you know, 15 stories I wrote, here they are in book form. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I sort of kept, like, adding to the collection, and then I would, like, strip away stories that, as I sort of progressed as an artist, I was like, ooh, I don't like this story anymore. Like, this is kind of embarrassing. Or it doesn't really fit with these stories that I do like. Um, and I kind of just kept slowly adding them. Um, and then, yeah, when I got to the point where I wanted to sell the collection, there actually were a few stories in there that are no longer the final version, and there was one story that wasn't in there. So Eight Bites was not in the first version we sent out to publishers because I hadn't finished it yet. Um, and there were a couple others in there that I ended up taking out. But that was the version that went out, and then once I finally... Um, and then it came back and nobody took it, so I... And then I was like, well, I had this other story, and we almost added it in there because I think it's, it fits... And we'll send out to another sort of round of editors. Um, that's when uh, Ethan and South Gabriel picked it up. Oh, wow. Uh, that's kind of amazing yeah. that, like, one story made that big of a difference. I don't, I don't think it was the one story. Oh, okay. I think, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's what it was. I think Grey Wolf, I think I was, I think the reason that that first round didn't really work is I think, um, I think it's a problem of the short story collection just aren't very, and pop, uh, larger houses, I think, are nervous about taking them on because they're not um, Like, But I did get a lot of, like, I mean, people were, like, lovely about it, but they were like, oh, we, you know, we can't, we can't take this on. So I, I don't think it was the one story. But anyway, so then that final story went in, and then when Ethan picked it up, then we sort of stripped away a couple pieces that were, like, shorter and they weren't really, like, speaking, and he was like, let's have, like, a really tight lean collection, like, just, like, eight stories, two of them are novellas, like, there you go. Um, yeah, so that's sort of, that's sort of what happened. It sort of worked out, but it ends up being, um, like, six, no, it's like five years worth of stories, basically. Right, um, right. And I think people, I mean, I think readers who aren't writers, probably, and especially when writing is so good, you know, and it's so hard, it's just like this kind of clear pane of glass and you can't see all of the work that went into it, and you just think, oh, it's short, so it it was easy. Right. Yeah, and I mean, some of them, I mean, like, inventory I wrote in uh, an afternoon, and I barely have changed since the published mm, version. I loved that um, story. I mean, I, I loved all of them, but that story really, really got me. 
Yeah, and that story, I mean, it's, pretty, it's relatively short, even given in the, even in the context of, like, that collection. Like, it's among the shorter, if not the shortest story in the collection. Um, it actually is definitely the shortest. And it, it has a pretty strong conceit, so I think that helped with how fast it came out. But, yeah, I just, like, that that was, like, weirdly fully formed. Like, it just sort of sprung out of me. Um, but it's funny because now I'm working on this new, I'm working on some new projects and I'm working on this one story right now that's just taking me forever because it's like historical and there's research and it's just like, and it's just, I feel like I'm just chipping away at it so slowly and it's a really different feeling. So I just, yeah, some stories come out very easily and others, and there are other stories I've written too in that short of a time frame, but also some of them just take forever or like The Resident, um, which is the only like, unpublished story in that collection. Um, took them forever because when when they, when Grail bought the book, like that one had never been sold and had never been edited in any way, and so it was like a hot mess. And Ethan was so sweet; he was just like very gently was like, "I think this one will require the most work." <laughs> I was like, "Yes, yes, that's, just that's correct. Lay it on me. I'm ready." Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So basically, the majority of my sort of like intensive edits were on that story. Like there were other stories that needed some more work, but like. You know, they, a lot of them have been published. They've been already through, like, a pretty rigorous editorial process. But that one, it just took us a month, months to, like, get that right. Um, because I didn't really know what the story was about. Right. So that one just took forever. I mean, it's a longer story, but also just, like, yeah, it just, was, it just needed a lot of soul-searching and a lot of sort of, like, interrogating, like, what I, what maybe my subconscious was trying to do when I first created this, like, weird thing. Um, right. That that actually ties back to to something that I latched onto in what you were uh, when you started answering the question was about kind of finding your own aesthetic and all this all the writing that you had done before that you know wasn't really working or people weren't connecting with, and I wonder. I know these sorts of things are so hard to articulate, but but both that concept and this concept that we're talking about of finding you know what that story is actually about seems to be for me a lot of just like writing a lot of words and then accidentally stumbling on the ones that like reveal it to you both with like what your style is and what you're trying to say and I wonder if you could talk about how that <laughs> how that developed for you oh totally yeah and I, I totally agree um that's sort of why I don't know like yeah like if people ask me you know it's like you just gotta keep writing because like you're just sort of like arriving at the inside of your own head like that's where you're going you know you're like trying to figure out what you mean which is like you know which is really hard it's like not easy uh but yeah so basically what happened was like I said like I got to grad school and I just didn't you know my my I wasn't a lit major I was a photo major in college after I left journalism I, I kind of bounced around a little bit and then I and then I ended up in photography so like my sort of um reading experiences my reading sort of canon was very like specific but not like broad um it was more just like all the things I was sort of interested in and when I got to grad school I was sort of just writing like I guess you'd call them like domestic realism which is like actually a genre that when done well I actually quite enjoy but was not working for me as a writer like I they were just not good and I remember writing this truly dreadful story about a girl who or no, I'm sorry, a woman whose, like, father has died, and, like, her mother had died years before, and it was just this really, like, wretched slog of a thing, um, 
which my classmates were all two years to point out to me. I just they were very helpful. But like the whole thing was like pretty dreadful. But there was a scene in it where the this woman having gone to her father's funeral is sitting in her hotel room and death appears to her and is just following her around and isn't saying anything and she's like flying in a plane and imagining death like pulsing through the ocean like to come out on the other side of this like flight um and everybody was like so here's the thing most of the story is dreadful they didn't say that they were (laughs) diplomatic but they were basically what they were saying was most of the story is pretty forgettable and boring but that part was super interesting um because i think what was happening was like my my subconscious was sort of like here's a weird thing i can pop in here and that was what i actually wanted to be writing right you know it was just a weird conceit of like death doesn't it really trip you out when you think about like how much your mind resists doing what it obviously wants to do? Oh, totally. I'm like, why do yeah. I? Why do I work this yeah. way? This is so inefficient. It's, it's funny because I feel like some people people talk a lot. I, I, I don't. It wasn't actually. I don't know. People talk a lot about like I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop. People talk about that being sort of like oh, like a bastion of realism. Like you can't write it. But like I was writing genre there almost exclusively, and and I never felt. Like, I think my brain was resisting, but everyone was trying to help me. They were like, okay, follow that instinct. Just follow it. <laughs> right. You're doing this thing. Like, clearly it's what you want to be doing. Like, just go. Go after that thing. Um, just what I did. So, yeah. So, basically, I I sort of did that a few times. And then my second semester, I wrote difficult at parties. And I don't know. I just, I was like, I want to write a story about sexual violence. But I, I want to use sort of like this genre-ish conceit. Like, I wonder... How do, how do I do that? And I don't know. It just sort of came out. Um, and I realized, and it felt right, you know. It just felt like I had arrived at some, something important about my own practice or my own work. What uh, made you decide to go to grad school and to go to Iowa? I feel like the, the MFA question is always a big one. Sure, sure. Um, the honest truth of it is the reason I went to an MFA program is because I was living in California. I was super broke. I was working a job that I hated and I wanted to leave more than anything in the world. And I did not want to move in with my parents. That, that is why I applied to an MFA program. <laughs> the idea of moving with my parents was so unbearable to me, but the idea of staying at my job was also so unbearable to me that I then set upon this like wild course and I applied. I was a total nut. I applied to 26 programs. Whoa. So that was like, I must leave. I must get out of here. I'm dying. Like, I must, I must get out of California. I'm so unhappy in every way. And now had you been writing, I mean, I'm sure because you had to have samples for all of these applications, but so you had been working this shitty job and then just kind of like getting up in the mornings and writing or were you just sort of hoping of dreaming about writing at that time? <laughs> um, well, when I was in college, I had this really incredible uh, professor, Harvey Grossinger, who was like super uh, encouraging to me really believed in my work like was like you're really talented and had continued to like read my stuff well after I had left school and he was like so lovely and he was sort of always encouraging me to apply like he he was always sort of saying like whatever he would sort of email back and forth he would just be like you should definitely apply to an MFA program um which was really nice and it sort of sort of in the back of my head and he was like you know some were funded and I was like okay that's good to know um because I was paying off of these student loans I mean I still am um <laughs> and uh and yeah, and so 
in California, I was sort of, yeah, I was just like picking away at projects. I mean, it wasn't also, I wasn't writing in the morning, I was writing like at work. <laughs> like, it was just like, like I'd have like a, a downtime and I'd just be like writing for like an hour uh, or whatever. Like I would just, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just like writing and submitting to him and he'd send me back some notes and, um, and then, yeah, and then at some point I, I was just like, I should apply to programs. And so initially what I did was, I wasn't sure I wanted to leave the Bay Area, and so I just applied to like local MFA programs in that area. But none of the ones were they were none were funded, so I actually got into all of them. And then realized I couldn't. Afford, I I don't know what I was thinking. I just like applied, and then and there was like five of them, and then they all were like, "We want you, but we can't give you any money." And I was like, "Well, uh, well, it's been it's uh, been nice chatting." Know. Right? Yeah. So then um, I sort of talked to him about it. He said, you know, he's like, I think you're talented. And I think if you apply, if you really focused on your submissions and you applied um, to a funded program, I think you'd have a good shot. Just apply to as many as you can. Because, like, obviously there's, like, a lot of factors that are out of your control, you know, when you're applying. Um, so then I was like, okay, so I'm committing to another year here. Okay, I can do that. And so I, like, basically the whole next year was just, like, prepping. And I was just, like, writing and revising and writing and revising. And, and yeah, and then I applied to 26 programs, um, which I don't recommend to anyone. It was the worst. <laughs> I, and I feel like I, and I also went through this, like, bad break at the same time, so I feel like I was in this, like, weird haze, and I was just, like, applying sort of, like, willy-nilly. And then, yeah, and then it was over. Like, I barely remember doing all the applications, and then I, and then I, like, was just waiting. Um, and then, yeah, like, spring rolled around, and I just started getting sort of f- phone calls, and and I was really excited because I knew that I'd be, like, leaving. Like, I was like, okay, I'm, I, I have a ticket out of here. Like, whatever program I choose, because I got a couple offers, like, I'll just, I can get out of here. Yeah, and then Iowa called. And, um, and when I went, and then they, they were, and Sam Chang was super lovely and said, you know, come visit and just, like, see what it's like here. And I loved Iowa City. Like, I really loved it. Um, I'd been in the Bay Area, and it was really making me, I, I just didn't like anything about it. I didn't like the weather. I didn't like how expensive it was. And Iowa City was, like, the opposite of all those things. Like, it was, like, affordable, some sort of fun little town, but, like, kind of chill. Um, and had seasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I was, like, really, really excited and really into it. And um, and I said yes. And, and, and that happened. Um and I'm really grateful I went. I mean, you know, I think to decide to go to a program like that, it sort of depends on what kind of writer you are. And, like, obviously, like, I was able to just, like, uproot my life and go. Like, I didn't have any family. I didn't have any, you know, there's nothing keeping me in the Bay Area. I could just leave. Um, but, you know, I basically got two years to just write, work on my own writing and, like, think about my own practice. And I don't know. It was just, I mean, I don't think I would be... I, mean, I think it accelerated a lot of things that happened that wouldn't have happened sort of as a writer. It's like just gonna gave me this like space to sort of be safe, experiment, you know, not to really work except for teaching a one class. Didn't have any debt in it. And it was just great. I don't know. I, I really loved it. I and I and all the teachers there were just like, so incredible and encouraging and like brilliant and I feel just incredibly lucky. Um so yeah, I really loved it and I miss it. And um I don't think I would be sort of where I am without having gone through that process. And, you know, a, a lot of folks have talked on the show about using MFA program, or maybe not using in this way, but a, a side effect of going through an MFA program being to really learn how you work best. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, I know you do some teaching now, and um, 
how much of your day gets to resemble that kind of ideal workflow now? Or do you do you find that you still have to kind of do some other things? The, kind of the business of writing meets your daily writing routine, basically, is what I'm asking. Yeah, so I actually don't write every day. Um, when I'm teaching, I, I have real trouble focusing on other things. Like, teaching takes up a lot of my sort of brain space, and to really, like, sit... Like, I feel like what I need when I'm writing is, like, large, interrupted, uninterrupted swaths of time, stretching out before me endlessly, and no real commitments. Um, So I actually work best at residencies, and I do a lot of residencies as a result. Um, I'm always incredibly productive during them, and I come away, and I'm done, like, eight years worth of work, you know, in, like, a month or whatever. Um, I mean, I am occasionally doing things throughout the year. Like, I am picking away at things and taking a lot of notes, but, like, when I'm doing the most sort of focused writing is when I'm is when I'm at a residency. You have done a, a ton and a ton of really incredible ones. And can you talk about, you know, do you socialize much when you're there? Or are you kind of just like in it in the zone? I keep very Puritan hours. Uh, so I tend to like go to bed at like nine. Right. <laughs> like just generally nine. in life. No, well, I mean, I do go to bed pretty early in my regular life, but especially at residency. Okay. So residency is something that's like, because at home, I'm like, oh, watch some TV, or like, I'll hang out with my wife, or we're going to like play a game, or we're going to, you know, whatever. Um, at residency, I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going to go to bed because, like, it's dark out. <laughs> and I'm like, let's see how the pilgrims did it, you know? And then I'll like get up at like the crack of dawn. Um, and that feels really good because then I'll like go with all my work by like noon, you know? Um, and I work really well in the morning. I'm like very focused. Um, and the later in the day it gets, the less focused I get. And then by night, I, I can't write at night at all. Like if it's dark out, my brain is just like off. Um, so usually the way I do it is I just get up super early, work kind of all day into the early afternoon, and then um, try and do some kind of physical activity because like otherwise I'll just sit. Like I'll try to go. You know, usually these places are like really beautiful natural places, and I'll like go for a long walk or a hike. And then, you know, by dinner time, I'm, like, ready to... And I'm very extroverted, so I actually love socializing. So, like, when I get to dinner, I'm, like, ready to, like, you know, chat with everybody about their days and, like, ask about their work and, like, talk about current events. Though, I mean, when I was at Yaddo last fall, it was during the election. Mm. Um, and it was, like, everyone was having, like, a collective nervous breakdown because it was so stressful and everybody was just freaking out. Um, so that was really intense and there was a lot of political talk and it was like exhausting, but still it was really fun. Like I still right. enjoyed like talking to people. Um, so yeah, so the, that residency schedule just gives me a lot of, like just gives me, it's just like what I need. And it's, I'm sort of stripped away from like all of my sort of daily, like at home I'll be like fussing with the lot, I'll be fussing with this or fussing with that or like I have to sweep the floor or I have to do this thing. And like, it, you know, when I'm at a residency, I'm just like super focused. So it feels like, it's like it's, it gives me an ability to like have a good balance. Um, and I never, I never feel super hermity or anything. Right. Yeah. That um, a similar feeling, like I, I work from home. I have an office at my house, but um, occasionally if I'm like really stuck on something, I'll go work in like a cafe or like our museum has a really beautiful, like kind of courtyard space that you can go sit and order coffee in and I'll go sit there and work. And, um, and I think just having like a dedicated space for a dedicated purpose is really powerful psychologically. Yeah, you know, right now we live in an apartment and it's, we have like a, a shared office, my wife and I, and it's also like our library. Um, but even though, um, 
you know, we have the office, like, it's not quite, it's, like, always kind of messy, and, like, there's just, like, a stuff everywhere, and, like, it's sort of a catch-all room, like, we just got married in June, and, like, that's where we sort of wedding stuff, and my dream is to one day have a house where there's, like, a separate writing studio, like, off of the house. Right. Um, that I can go to, because I feel like that would actually achieve a very similar, a very similar effect. Yeah. I'm going to work now, even if I'm walking like 10 feet into the backyard or whatever. Um, and I think that actually would, would have a similar effect that I would really like that. I also, yeah, I like rooms that have like, like dedicated rooms for like certain purposes. I really like that a lot. Right. Right. This is a little bit off topic, but I, um, I'm looking down at the the things I wanted to ask you, and I can't believe I hadn't brought this up yet. That you also write erotica under a pen name, and I would love to talk about <laughs> um, writing about sex generally. Like you know, what I I just feel like that's something that so many writers do in so many different ways to so many different degrees of success. <laughs> and so, could you just talk about like what you know, how you engage with with sex as an idea in fiction, and and kind of why you know. What what purpose uh, or what satisfaction writing erotica specifically serves for you that maybe just having sex in your fiction doesn't? Sure. I mean, sort of the way that I categorize it um, for folks is like, in erotica, plot serves the sex. Like, the plot of the story is being orchestrated to maximize voting. Like, that is the thing of it. Um, and... In, in my short fiction, the sex, even when there's a lot of it, and even when it's explicit, is like serving a function in the story. It's serving the plot, or it's serving the architecture of the story in some way. Um, and those are really separate goals and require like really separate ways of thinking about, about scene and about you know the way that you're sort of orchestrating it. Um, so I haven't written any like erotica in a while, just because I just don't have the time. Um, but I did, really, yeah, for a while that was like what I was doing, and then I had this like separate pen name, and then at some point I was just like, eh, like whatever, I don't, I don't care if people know that was me, like not a big deal. Um, but I wasn't sure for a while because I was worried about like I'm trying to get a job and I can't get a job because like whatever, you know. Right, but right. It's, it's like my fiction is already that explicit anyway, so like what? what yeah. <laughs> Surprise, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like erotica just has this very sort of like focused pleasure of sort of like. I'm going to write the sexiest thing I can think of. And I'm going to like to think of this plot that like creates this, these situations that I am imagining. And that has its own just sort of like lovely sort of circular pleasure that just really, I don't know. I just really enjoy it. Um, but it's a very different, cause I feel like when I'm writing fiction, it's a lot more sort of like, I'm like orchestrating this like huge thing in this very like specific way. excited to read uh, a thing that you were writing about Kelly Link in which in which you said that like she prompted you to start making lists of literary obsessions and that now you're like very big into lists and I just wanted to get into that because it sounded fun. Yeah, uh, I am a huge proponent of lists again as a teacher also like I encourage my students to make lots of different kinds of lists um, because I feel like that's the best way that I can kind of organize my it's the best way for me to organize like my ideas and my thoughts. Um, and it's helpful for just sort of generating, like breaking into my own subconscious and like generating like what's going on in there. Like what am I really into or what am I really afraid of or what am I really now? Like what's sort of happening? So how does that work for your, for your writing, especially like, you know, you had mentioned 
seeing a list of things and realizing that it was one story. What are, you know, what are those list items in, in situations like that? What are you jotting down? Like lines or, or moods, characters? It's, it's kind of everything. Like I have a, um, I don't know if you ever use Scrivener, but like I have oh, a yeah. document. Okay. Yeah. So I have a Scrivener document um, that's like in the sort of left-hand column, you know, I have just like all these like sort of subcategories, you know, so I have like, Lists of sentences, lists of images, lists of potential titles, lists of characters, lists of formal conceits, lists of um, just like just general ideas, um, you know, uh, articles that I read that I think are interesting, that I think could be useful, um, uh, like phenomena that I've heard about or read about that I'm like, oh, I could write about that. That's really interesting. So like in the case of the husband stitch, like basically the lists, the various, in the various lists that I had, I had write a story about like a mid-century housewife who really likes sex. That was one idea that I had. I had write a retelling of the girl with ribbon story. That was another idea. And then I had um, the title of the husband stitch and those things all came together. And I, you know, so, so yeah. So I feel like I, I yeah, I just, I just sort of like maintain those lists and I try to all go into, I'll go back into them and I'll realize like a bunch of them I already use and I'll like cross them out. So I'm like, oh, you know, um, but yeah, the list keeping is just like very helpful um, as a way of organizing my own thoughts. Um, and also just like, you know, thinking about like, when I get information, like if I'm like, in my day and someone tells me like really weird fact, I like tuck it away in my pocket. So my pocket is just my list. Right. 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 Um, like, oh, I can use that later. That's really interesting. It's a way of almost like reinforcing like uh, my subconscious, like being open to like what's sort of happening every day. Yeah. And, like, pay attention to what's going on, like, listen to what people are telling me, which I do anyway, but, like, it's just a way of being, like, you know, the material, it's coming from me, and it's coming from, like, me interacting with the world every day, and this is just a process of how I, this is just how I gather. What does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? I think for me, it would look like being at a point in my career where I'm earning enough money with my work to support the work that I want to do. Because, like, you know, right now, like, I have a bunch of projects in progress, but I have no time to work on them, you know, because I'm, like, teaching and, like, doing other things to, like, make ends meet and, like, pay off my student loans, like, do all this stuff and, like, but I feel like at some point I really want, I hope that, like, through, like, teaching, but also, like, in a very, with a very strict schedule and not having to, you know, and, like, I, that, I, that I am able to, like, actually support focusing on like the other work that I really want to get done yeah so that I can actually get to the things like I'm, I mean, I'm gonna die at some point right like we're all gonna die and I want to get everything done that I want to get done before I die so so yeah you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at wmfapodcast.com have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs>